Philippians chapter 1, verses 19, uh, verses 19 through 26. Let's read these verses and we'll dive into them. Verse 19 says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is to gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may abide. Uh, may be more abounding in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So I just want to remind you, Paul has introduced himself and then also kind of told these believers how much he's thankful for them, how he's praying for them. And then last week, verses 12 through 18, Paul informed them of the things that was happening to him. Because they had a genuine concern and care for him. They wanted to know if he was still alive, if he was still in prison, or if he had gotten free. There was things happening to Paul. But Paul doesn't go into detail about the things happening to him. He actually says, listen, the things that happened to me have actually catapulted the gospel further throughout Rome. So that all these soldiers, there's about 10,000 special forces that Paul refers to as the Roman guard or the palace guard here. He says that all of them have, they know that my chains are in Christ Jesus. And he shares with them how he has this desire to see people come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and how other believers are actually even being stirred up by his chains and the things that Paul is going through. I don't know about you guys, but as I've been studying this letter, I keep getting convicted each and every week. Each and every week, I'm reminded I need to be more and more like Jesus. And I'm reminded of my kind of flaws, my inadequacies, and different areas of my life where Christ needs to kind of further go into. And even as we look at this section here, to me it is so powerful, these verses. Let's look at this. Verse 19, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. This was, Paul, this was not Paul's final imprisonment in Rome, but he didn't know that. As he was awaiting trial, he knew he could either be released or executed. That was the two options. However, he trusted in Christ to work out his deliverance. And he was confident that God was in control. And that God was going to work out his plans and his purposes in his life, no matter the situation. He even says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. History tells us that Paul would be released from prison for about a couple years and then thrown back in prison 
where he writes his last letter to Timothy, which is 2 Timothy, and then he would be killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's confident. He goes, whether I'm actually going to be released and delivered from this prison or I'm delivered from this body and I'm executed and I go to be with Jesus, he goes, either way, I know God's going to deliver me. And he knows because these believers in Philippi were praying for Paul. It's interesting. These believers were known for their prayers. Are we known for our prayers? Do people come to you and I say, hey, I need you to pray for me because I know the Lord actually listens to you. And God hears your prayers. I remember, I want to say it was possibly this one pastor, um, Jeremiah. Um, What's his last name? I forget, but he pastors a church in San Diego, and I think he had cancer. And the first people he actually goes and asks prayer for is this church called the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York. Because he, he said, I know you guys pray, and God hears your prayers. I went to their prayer service on this last trip when I was in New York, and they hold them on Tuesday nights. And you know what? The doors open at like 5.30. The service doesn't start till 6. And there's a line waiting to get into the church to pray. And from 5.30 to 6, people are already in the sanctuary interceding and praying for others. There's, a, there's like pastors and leaders up at front where you can get prayer. And then when, you're, when you walk in, you're actually handed a specific name and a specific prayer request. And so your job is to pray for that person on that card. And my guy was Griffith, Griffith Thomas, I believe his name was. And I got to pray for him. And it was so powerful being at that service and there was different aspects of prayer. But Paul was confident in this church, how they were praying for him, how God would use it. Are we confident in the power of prayer? Because prayer actually moves the heart of God. James chapter 4, verse 2 says, You have not because you ask not. I love this. It's because of this verse, the things that we don't have, it's because we don't ask. And God moves because we pray. I was reminded of this fact in my morning devotions. In Amos chapter 7, God revealed to Amos this vision, and God actually started punishing the people. And because of that, he started interceding, and he prayed for the people. And because of Amos' prayer, it says the Lord relented. That means if God didn't show Amos this vision, then he wouldn't have been praying, and he wouldn't have relented. But because God showed him, and because Amos prayed, God did relent. God stopped his judgment during that time. Two times that happened in that chapter 7 of Amos. That means prayer works and God actually answers prayer. This reminds me of also Acts chapter 12. I love this. To me, this is a hilarious story in Scripture. Because Paul's in prison. His friend, James, just had been beheaded for his faith. And he's asleep with chains on. There's the church a couple blocks down. They're praying for Paul and they're interceding for him to be released. And all of a sudden, Paul is awakened out of sleep, chains fall off, the doors fling open, and this angel leads him out of the prison to this house. And he knocks on the door and he keeps knocking like kind of quietly because he doesn't want to wake anybody else up. And then all of a sudden, this little girl opens the door and she goes, oh! 
we've been praying for you. She slams the door in his face, goes running, goes, hey, Peter's here, Peter's here. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And then he's like still knocking, like, guys, let me in, come on. And then all of a sudden, they're like, they're shocked. It's kind of funny. They're shocked that their prayers are answered. Shouldn't it be the other way around? That we are shocked when our prayers aren't answered? Because we just have that confidence in God and his ability? They were surprised. And so I think so often we are surprised with prayer when it works. When God tells us, when we pray according to his word, when we pray according to his will, he desires to answer it. C.T. Studd, he has some incredible quotes. And one of them that I read recently was this. He says, we are nibblers of the possible instead of grabbing the impossible. We're like little bunnies chewing at the possible. When God says, pray for the impossible, look beyond just what is possible. Look to the impossible because we serve the God that when you add him into the equation, the impossible is possible. We need to have that type of faith and then trust God and his power and his wisdom and his ways to accomplish what he wants to in his time. Notice he also says the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. When I was reading this earlier, I kept reading the word supply and I read supplication. I don't know why. My dyslexic brain kind of throws words on the text. And then as I was studying it today, I was like, wait, I've been reading that word the wrong this whole time. And I love this because he says the supply of the spirit. This is the strength which the Spirit would supply to Paul. It's the boundless resources of the Holy Spirit supplied to enable us to stand fast regardless of the circumstances. To be immovable, as Paul says, none of these things move me. I don't even count my life dear to myself. That's what the Spirit supplies in our life. In verse 20, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that nothing I shall be ashamed. As Paul was contemplating their prayers of these believers and the assistance of the Holy Spirit, he expresses his desire and his hope that he would not be ashamed. He's confident of that. That was his confident expectation. That's what the word hope is, a confident expectation, a sure certain reality not yet enjoyed. Romans chapter 6 or actually chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jews first and also for the Greek. He says, but with all boldness as always. He says that I wouldn't be ashamed, but I would have all boldness. Think about that. What is all boldness? It's having no fear. It's being so confident in God's ability and having a concern for the individual in front of you in the glory of God that you have this boldness to move forward. Now, did Paul have this boldness all the time? I think Paul realized his inability, and that's why he even asked believers to pray for him to have boldness. And we ought to do the same. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, he says, and for me, he's basically saying, pray for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to. How many of you guys find yourself timid at times? I do. <laughs> 
I feel intimidated to share with people or to pray for people. Paul says, pray for me that I would have boldness. Let us pray for one another that we all would be bold and courageous. But I love this next phrase in verse 20. He says, and now so, and um, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body. Will be magnified. This phrase literally means to be exalted, glorified, to make large, magnified. Now the question is, does Christ really need to be magnified? After all, how can we as mere human beings magnify the Son of God? One commentator, William McDonald, said, to magnify does not mean to make Christ greater. He is already great, and nothing we can do can make him greater. Okay? There's nothing you and I can do to make Christ greater than he already is. So I want you to think of a telescope. That's why I put this little telescope that I have in my office here. Um, I think this is like one of the first things I bought when I had an office. I didn't know why I saw it, but I liked it. I was like, I'm going to buy it. And it's come in handy, and it always reminds me of this passage of Scripture here. The stars are much bigger than a telescope. And yet the telescope magnifies them and brings them closer. The believer's body is to be a telescope that brings Jesus Christ closer to people. See, the thing is, Jesus Christ feels distant to people. Many people feel like God isn't listening to their prayers, that God is not even involved. But it is our job to bring Jesus closer to other people, right up to their faces, so that when people look through our lives, they are seeing Jesus. That is the point. When they look through your lives, that they would see Christ. And that was Paul's heart. He says, I want to magnify Christ above all other things. I want to exalt him. But you are either magnifying your problems or you are magnifying Christ. You can't do both at the same time. You're either taking your life and zooming in on your problems and they get so big and so overwhelming that you get this anxious heart and this anxious mind and you're getting ripped apart internally. Or you can direct your eyes and your mind towards Christ. And those things will slowly diminish and fade away. Which one are you magnifying? Your problems or Christ? I find myself in my mind getting overwhelmed because I'm focusing on magnifying my problems and the things that I'm going through at times. The last couple of weeks I've been feeling squeezed out, experiencing pressure, overwhelmed. Even today, as Dustin was helping an old friend that I actually knew in high school, and yet he's drifted so far from the Lord. And just to see him visibly. Just messes with you. 
breaks your heart. But I've also had times in my life where I was magnifying Jesus. And when I chose to magnify Jesus in my life, that's when I had the most joy because I wasn't focused on self. I wasn't focused on my pleasure, what I wanted. I was so consumed and concerned with Jesus that I had this joy just gushing from me. And if you want joy gushing from your life, it becomes, it comes into your life as we gaze and center our focus on the Lord. So practically, how do we magnify Christ in our bodies? I want to invite you guys to answer this question. What are some simple, practical ways that you and I can magnify Christ within our bodies? Prayer, true. Through prayer, we can magnify the Lord. Anything else? Worship. Through worship, absolutely. I'll never forget uh, at one men's conference that Jason Duff said, he goes, dude, we should wear out our voices and our passion for worshiping the Lord. Is Christ being magnified through us as we worship in the audience? 100%, I agree. That's even through our lips. We're magnifying Christ through our lips. How else can we magnify God? Showing God's love. Showing God's love. True. And that could simply look like helping somebody who they spill all their groceries on the floor. That can be um, assisting somebody who their tire popped and all of a sudden then you pull over. I remember one time we were coming back from a... um, youth workers luncheon where all a bunch of youth ministers get together and it was me Dustin and this one guy Jay from La Habra and all of a sudden there's we were in the fast lane on the freeway and this crash takes place either in front of us or behind us it was so fast it was insane we're like oh my goodness that's crazy and we were about to take off and Dustin was driving and I would have done the same thing and Jay's like hey pull over let's go help him and it was just like second nature to him And I loved that. I was kind of convicted in my heart. I was like, dang, how quick he was to respond and see if the other people needed help. I think there's several ways we can magnify the Lord through our bodies. Like you said, through our lips, joyfully telling other people about Jesus and singing praises to God from the depths of our being. What about through our hands? Through our hands by uh, hugging somebody who's feeling down and out by using our hands to work hard for the Lord, to labor for the Lord, using our hands in the midst of our schoolwork. You can magnify Jesus in your schoolwork through your typing, through your writing. We can magnify Christ through our feet as we walk towards other people to greet them that we don't know, as we walk with people through pain and hurt. We can magnify Christ through our ears as we listen to people with a caring heart. We can magnify Christ through our knees as we bend them in prayer and through our shoulders as we help bear one another's burdens. There's many ways we can magnify the Lord. Are we 
praying for those opportunities? Are we using our whole entire body to magnify the Lord? After all, our body is not our own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. I love this verse. I remember when the Lord kind of made this verse a reality in my life. I was teaching, I think on a Wednesday night for high school ministry. And I was just chewing this over. I was like, my body does not belong to me anymore. My eyes don't belong to me. My ears don't belong to me. My mind, my hand, nothing is mine anymore. Even when you become a believer, your finances, your money is no longer yours. It's God giving it to you to see what you're going to do with it. Everything that we have is God's. Yet we live polar opposite, that everything we have is mine. And I can choose what I give to the Lord and what I don't. Paul says, I want to magnify Jesus Christ, whether it's by life or by death. He goes, it doesn't matter to me. Whether I live or I die, I just want to magnify Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, uh, 10, he says that the life of Jesus also may be manifested, made visible in our bodies. He says, I want to live my life where I'm making Jesus' actual life visible through mine. And then he says this beautiful statement in verse 21. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Sometimes we think to the extreme, and we think, oh yeah, I would die for this person. But you know what? It's easy to die for someone or something you love. It's much harder to live for them and to stay alive. See, I believe a lot of people are living for the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. But Paul, he lived for Christ. What are you living for? When you wake up each morning, what's the first thing that pops into your heart? What's, think, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Is it you're like, oh man, is there coffee ready? I'm, I'm, I want some coffee. <laughs> I'm guilty, I, I like coffee. Or is it like, do you go on your phone and you instantly look at your feed? to see what people have said or posted and you scroll. Is that the last thing you do before you go to sleep and the first thing you do when you wake up? What are you living for? Are you living for other people to get their approval, to please them? Are you even living for your parents? See, you guys are at this weird dynamic age where as a kid, you're growing up and you're doing everything that your parents are telling you, but now you're entering into junior high, almost high school, and you're starting to question things. You're starting to push the boundaries. You're starting to like, I don't want to do that, mom. I don't want to do that, dad. And are you seeking to please your parents or are you seeking to please Jesus? Because when you actually please the Lord, you will actually please all the important people in your life. And if they aren't pleased by you pleasing Jesus, there's something wrong with them. What are we living for? And then what are the reasons we are living for that thing or that person? I would challenge you, fill in the blank. For me to live 
is blank. And to die is blank. For me to live is for fame. And to die is to lose it all. For me to live is money. And that's what your, your goal is, is to get rich growing up. Here is, in a nutshell, Paul's philosophy of life, his mindset. He did not live for money, fame, or pleasure. The object of his life was to love, worship, and serve the Lord Jesus. He wanted his life to be like the life of Christ. He wanted the Savior to live out his life through him. And that's the interesting thing, guys. When you become a believer, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30, we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We have this special oneness with Christ that is unreal. You actually can allow Jesus to live through you. To your family, to your friends. The problem is we get in the way. We make it about what we want, our desires. But when we actually step out of the way and say, Lord, I want what you want, all of a sudden he's able to flow through us freely and his peace comes and his joy comes. Paul had this mindset, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, loved me and gave himself for me. I, to me, that's incredible. He goes, dude, the life that I now live in my body is no longer me. It's Jesus living through me. That's what he's saying. He says, the old Paul is crucified with Jesus on the cross. He's dead, powerless. And I pray that we would see our old self as being crucified. But then notice, he says, to die is gain. Now, I don't know about you. When was the last time you talked to somebody and they're like, dude, yeah, to die is gain? Not many people talk like that. That's kind of a strange way to look on death as gaining. But that is the case for us as believers. See, death is not the end for us. It is only the beginning of a never-ending story that gets better and better. I'm going to spoil a book for you guys if you haven't finished reading it. Sorry. Um... <laughs> but I think it portrays the Christian life so well. And I'm actually gonna have it read at my funeral if I die before the rapture. And that is this. In the very last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, there is this book called The Last Battle. I have not read the book. I actually read the ending, okay? I'll be honest. <laughs> I read, I think, The Magician's Nephew and The Chronicles of Narnia, or uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then, so I read the ending, but the ending is so beautiful because the two kids that kind of grew up through the whole story, all of a sudden, they're standing before Aslan and they didn't like go through a portal. They actually like died. And he's like, dude, what's going on? And then all of a sudden before their eyes, like Aslan says, your life was like the front cover of a book. That's how short your life is the Holy Bible, and it's done. 
That's how short our life is. It's like a vapor. And he goes, now starts the real story of a never-ending book where every chapter gets better and better and every page gets better and better. This is only the beginning. And they saw Aslan before their eyes, his face being altered and things started to change. And I just love that picture of kind of death. For us as believers, our life is the cover page of a book. But then once we die, we enter into the greatest story of all, where we see the Trinity, the God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit face to face. How beautiful. Paul says to die is gain. Verse 22, he says, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Paul says, as long as I am alive, that means I will continue to serve other believers and do my best to win non-believers and reach them with Jesus' love in the gospel message. But he also says, yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. He's torn between going to be with Jesus and staying here on earth. Have you guys ever been torn between two options? Maybe it's like two ice cream flavors. And you're just like, I don't know which one I want. Do I want cookies and cream? Or do I want coffee? I don't know. Or maybe it's like you're at a restaurant and you're like looking through the menu. And I don't know, how many of you guys love picture menus? I like picture menus. I don't like words. Like, show me the picture. I want to see what it looks like. And I'm, if there's no pictures, I'm looking at other people's tables. I'm like, all right, well, it looks really good. I was like, I want that. Or I'll go on Yelp or whatever online to see all their photos. And sometimes I, oh, do I want this or do I want that? How many of you guys have a hard time choosing when there's two options? Right? Sometimes it's difficult. And you're like, should we do this or should we do that? But even more so with Paul. He says in verse 23, he goes, I'm hard pressed between these two. He's like, I, I want to do this yet. I want to do this. And he's like, in his own mind, he's getting pulled back and forth. He's like, he doesn't know. He has this deep desire to be with Christ in heaven, which is far better than being on earth. Do you and I have that desire to be with Christ? I want us to do something really quick. It's kind of a simple exercise. But I want you, I want to kind of put a list out of the greatest things that you could think about doing in your, this life. Okay? So think about some like your bucket list. Things that you would love to do. One of the things I would love to do is go see the Aurora Borealis and the Northern Lights where it's like in the sky. To me that, I want to see that so bad. So I'm going to put that on the list. What else would you guys like love to do? And you're like, oh, this would be amazing. Anybody? Visit the cathedral in Germany. Is that a cool cathedral? Yeah? You guys show me pictures afterwards. What else? Go to Paris. Go to Paris, to the top of the Eiffel Tower. That would be cool. That would be really tight. What else? How about go to an NFL game of your favorite team? Would you want to do that? Okay. What about seeing your favorite artist? I know you ladies have a certain artist in mind, and you're just like, oh my gosh, I could spend the whole day with him. <laughs> we have all of these ideas, right? 
What about getting like your driver's license and driving your, your favorite car, your dream car? What about winning the lottery? Getting that millions or billions of dollars? What about falling in love? Or getting married? You girls are giggling. Or even going to space. How cool would that be? Like, I would love to go to space. That would be so cool. All of that. Anything your mind can paint or your heart can wish for is nothing compared to Jesus. Paul says, Jesus is better than all of those things and more. Psalm 63 verse 3 says, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Do you view God's love as better than life? And if we don't want to be with Christ, what's the reasons why? Are we so caught up with this world and the possibilities of what we might do? Or can you, I don't think we can really fathom what being with Jesus is going to be like. Maybe you haven't contemplated that, but it says in Colossians chapter 3, Verse 1 and 2, he says, If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then he says, set your mind on the things above and not on the things of this earth. When we actually get so heavenly minded, we will have an impact on this earth. But the problem is we get so occupied with this earth that we lose sight of heaven. To be with Christ. Now Christ is with us in a spiritual way by the Holy Spirit, but not yet in a physical way. Can you imagine what it will be like when we depart from this world and we awake to be with Christ? Where there's no more pain, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. Doesn't that sound fantastic? But all those things are nothing in comparison to coming face to face with Jesus. As I was really preparing for this message, I couldn't help but remember this song. And many of us know it, but I want to put the lyrics up on, and I want to just read it. And it's, I can only imagine. He says, I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side, I can only imagine what my eyes would see when his face is before me. I can only imagine. And then the chorus goes, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you, just be still? Will I stand in your presence or will, to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. You and I cannot fathom that great day when we see him face to face. That one glimpse when we see him, we would have wished we would have lived differently here on this earth. 
Paul says he was caught up to the third heaven and he was able to have a heavenly vision and the things he saw, he, can't, he says, it's unlawful for me to talk about. He's like, it's illegal for me to even mention it because there's no human words that can describe the things I saw. It's far better to be with Jesus. Do we see that? When Paul uses this word depart, it's used by soldiers in meaning to take down your tent and to move on. According to scripture in Paul's writings, Paul says that our bodies are like tents, temporary dwelling places. How many of you guys have ever been camping before? Camping's fun, correct? But only for a short time, right? I don't want to go past a week of camping. I want my own bed. I want my own different things. You've done two weeks? That's nuts. See, when we go to uh, high school camp, everyone like brings all their um, camps or their, all their tents. And you lay on the floor. And there are some people that didn't bring any like mattresses or anything. So they're like laying and there's rocks on this side, rocks on this side or whatever. And it's uncomfortable if you don't bring like an air mattress. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself, not by human hands. For we groan, sorry, we, we grow uh, weary in our bodies, present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothes. Paul says, dude, I groan, I long for that day where I will have a new body. I can't imagine having a new body. I'll probably have hair in my new body. <laughs> it won't fall apart. Paul says, our earthly bodies are like tents and our heavenly bodies are like mansions. Jesus even said in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would, not have, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That word mansions is dwelling places. It's like that idea of our heavenly bodies. You and I have a mansion in heaven waiting for us. A heavenly body that is glorious and designed for the Lord for all of eternity. Paul says, I'm ready to move on to the next world, to have a new body, to be with Jesus. But verse 24, he says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Think about this. Paul expresses his desires. And he says, honestly, I put my desires on hold for other people. When was the last time we did that? Where the things that we wanted to do, we says, I'm not going to do those things for other people. I don't know about you guys, but I can't help but be impressed by Paul's unselfishness. He does not think about his own comforts or his own ease, but rather he thinks about what is best for the cause of Christ and for the good of other people. He says, my purpose is to remain here in this physical body, to serve other people and to serve my Lord. Your purpose is the same as well, whether we've accepted it or not. 
Our job is not to please ourselves, but to please others. Who can you and I serve today? And then we'll close it out here in verses 25 and 26. He says, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your pro progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul wanted to come and visit these believers, but he realized that as he stays alive, it is for their progress so that these believers in Philippi would continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ to spread out their roots deeper into the Lord and produce more fruit to the glory of God for the joy of their faith, that their joy would increase and abound in Jesus. That's what it's about. To magnify Jesus, to live for Jesus, to be with Him. That is what our lives should be all about. What are you magnifying this evening? What are you focusing on and looking at through your life that has become maybe overwhelming and you need to change your gaze and look to Jesus? When other people look at you, what are they seeing? Are they seeing someone that is filled with joy? See, as you junior hires, I think the possibilities are endless with you. Honestly, the things that God wants to do in and through you would make other people marvel. But we have to first get our minds and our hearts set on Christ and focus on pleasing Him, making Him bigger in other people's eyes because Jesus feels so far away. We are to bring Christ closer to other people through our lives.